Welcome everyone to episode 112, Alternative Careers. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. 40 years ago today, I cast my shadow on the world for the first time. So there's that. I did that, and I, I've gotten to this point. So I guess I have a lot to be thankful for, Kiki. Happy birthday, 40 years young. That's right. Yep, doesn't feel so young. But, you know, talking to you, talking to the group out there, I know is listening, makes me feel young makes me feel great. So let's get on with it. Can we? We can. We will. We've done this show 112 times. You've made it around the sun 40 times. Oh, my. Let's keep going down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of the past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes will download automatically to your phone or other device. We have a great show today. In addition to the latest science and stem cell news, we will be talking with Dr. William Dunworth, a scientist whose career has taken him from bench to business, all about this career choice of his and why he made that decision. I think it'll be a really interesting conversation. Don't you? Absolutely, Kiki. Absolutely. And along those lines, is anyone out there looking to make your next career move in science? Well, you should check out the jobs board at www.connectsoncreative.com slash jobs. That's connectsoncreative.com slash jobs. This site is updated daily with jobs in all areas of cell biology, science from around the world. You can also post jobs on the site for free. So if you're looking for a great postdoc or a research tech in the lab, submit your posting by following the submit job link in the footer of the web page. Kiki, that's the job board. And now we're on to the roundup. You want to get started? I do want to get started. So first up, a lot of conversation these days about implementing gun control laws. But there is a new analysis from the nonprofit RAND Corporation, which some people have said is a nonprofit corporation behind a lot of government policies for decades now. But this nonprofit corporation has analyzed thousands of studies and found that only 63 establish an actual causal relationship between specific gun policies and outcomes like reductions in homicide and suicide. So really, even though there have been many studies, lawmakers don't have really clear facts, scientific facts that can help guide their decision-making around this really extremely divisive issue here in America. I mean, people today are saying, we, you know, you need to have gun control laws around who can get a gun, right? You have gun control laws about what kinds of guns could be available to people? How old should you be to be able to get a gun? There are all sorts of conversations going on right now, and people with very, very extreme opinions on both sides of the aisle. This analysis, however, is really notable because of the fact that they spent such effort to really look into the research that's out there. They spent two years and a million dollars on this project. They included a survey also of gun policy experts, and they constructed a research database on state gun laws to find out you know, what was happening at the state level, not just the federal level, but state level as a result of the disparate laws that are on the books. They really have found no clear evidence regarding any effects of gun policies on hunting and recreational gun use. There isn't any evidence regarding officer-involved shootings. There's not really any evidence either on mass shootings or the defensive use of guns by civilians. However, there's relatively strong evidence that policies meant to prevent children from accessing firearms, so laws that require guns to be stored unloaded or in locked containers, reduce not just unintentional injury and death for children, but reduce suicide as well. 
and also accidental and unintentional injury and death for adults, because that happens as a result of kids getting their hands on guns too. So there is evidence that those kinds of laws are helping. There's also evidence that prohibiting purchase by people who have been diagnosed with mental illness reduces violent crime. Also that stand your ground laws. These are laws that allow citizens who feel threatened in public to be able to use lethal force, to have guns on them and to use their guns without retreating first. Those lead to an increase in violent crime. Basically, if there are stand your ground laws, people will use their guns and there will be a greater use and a greater impact as a result of that. The survey of the gun policy experts, they asked 95 experts across the political spectrum what they thought of the effects of 15 different policies about guns and what they would be on 12 outcomes. These were universal background checks, bans on the sale of assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, expanded mental illness prohibitions, minimum age requirements, and required reporting of lost or stolen weapons. And the vast majority of the specialists surveyed agreed that really what gun policies should be trying to do is to reduce suicides and homicides, that that's what policy should be focused on as opposed to protecting privacy or enabling hunting and sport shooting and preventing mass shootings. So that actually focusing on preventing mass shootings is something that should be secondary in where the gun policy laws are implemented. I was with it until the last part. I don't know. I feel like that's a primary concern in light of recent events. It seems like they're happening more more often. And a mass shooting, let's remember, I think of the technically it's like three or more or something like that. Yeah. Three people shot or three people killed. Technically, so like we're not talking stopping mass shootings. It just seems like there'd be a lot you could do to stop mass shootings. We don't need to throw up our hands on that. I think also something that's been talked about is the fact that there is a prohibition of government research on guns and the effects of guns. And there's also a prohibition of like bringing up this kind of research in government policy making right now. So even though this has been done, what studies are we still missing? You know, what studies need to be done to give us more information? Because obviously the number of studies that are out there is insufficient and we need more evidence. So can we just get the government to allow us to access the database, to get government researchers to access the databases, to be able to really deep dive into the data to find out what will help and what won't, and to implement Do we have to ask? Can we please? I mean, come on. What is this? What a world. There's some good news, though, isn't there? There's some good news. Give me some. There is. You know, with all this world, and we talk about climate change all the time, and the Arctic is super warm. And I mean, I had a, a Lyft driver yesterday. He's telling me he's worried about the polar bears in the Arctic. You know, not just the polar bears in the Arctic. The Antarctic is under climate stress as well. And penguin colonies are on the decline. Researchers have just been worried about what's going to happen to the penguins. But there's one colony reported in scientific reports, an Adelie penguin colony located off the Antarctic Peninsula's northern tip in a place called Danger Islands. Maybe we hadn't seen this this penguin colony really the extent of it before because it's the Danger Islands and nobody wants to go there. No. But researchers were checking it out and they have satellite images. They're looking at these satellite images and say there's a lot of penguin poo on the rocks on these islands. And the expected number of Adelie penguins would not be able to place that much penguin poo on the rocks. Technical name is guano. So anyway, they're looking at the guano. There's more guano than expected. And so they did a a head count. They took drone images. This is one of those wonderful scientific uses of drones. That's great. They took drone images. They collected mud cores during a 2015 expedition. And then they used a computer algorithm, so AI, to analyze the images and to count the number of nests. They counted 751,527 penguin nests. That's very specific. It's very specific. And for every nesting bird they extrapolate out, they assume there's a penguin partner who's out to sea going to get food, right? So we're looking at a very large colony of penguins. This is the largest 
1.5 million Adelie penguins, a massive super colony that had gone unnoticed until recently and gives hope for penguins, or at least the Adelie penguins and their survival. That's good news. Although I have to say, if you're those penguins, it's probably bad news. They're bumming out right now because they had their spot. And this time next year, it's going to be like Cancun over there in the dangered islands. There's going to be a <laughs> bunch of penguins all blowing up the Adelie spot. Dang it. Why did, why did you scientists have to tell all the other penguins that the danger islands are the place to be? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's ruined. Yeah. Another interesting study. Now, this is moving on from penguins to babies. Now, I did not know this, that not only adults can suffer from stroke, babies, newborn babies can actually suffer from stroke. And it happens about one in 4,000 babies have a stroke shortly before, during, or after birth. And researchers have been interested in trying to find out what effect that has on the brain development and behavioral development of that baby, that of that individual as they grow. So researcher Alyssa Newport, director for the Center for Brain Plasticity and Recovery at Georgetown and the MedStar National Rehabilitation Network, looked into what was going on in the brains of these babies. They had a very small study, so it, this isn't a large sample size, but they had 12 people aged 12 to 25 who had had a left brain stroke when they were newborns. And these left brain strokes impacted the language center of the brain, normally in the left side of the brain. What they found is that in all 12 individuals, instead of suffering from language impairment, all 12 used the right side of their brain for language in areas of the brain that matched kind of symmetrically matched hemispherically the location of these language centers, but are not otherwise used for language. And so somehow as the brains developed, even though the stroke had impaired these language centers in these individuals, the plasticity of the brain during development allowed the newborns to be able to take over these other areas and say, okay, the brain said, I'm using this for language now. And the people suffer at, from absolutely no impairment in language. And so what this tells us is that there is definitely something to be said for the plasticity of the developing brain and its ability to compensate for damage during at least brief or small plastic period. Yeah, I guess that's why you don't hear a lot about the baby strokes is because they're like kind of okay. It's like not a big deal. Exactly. Yeah. So the babies may suffer a stroke, but the damage doesn't necessarily have as great of an impact because the brain can repair itself, figure it all out. And moving on from the brain to the eye, researchers have made a synthetic eyeball because why not? <laughs> <laughs> creepy. You always end with the creepy ones. Me or you always end with the creepy yeah, ones. This should be like a Halloween story, but... <laughs> I'm just picturing it. I mean, there's so many, I'm sure, there's every joke's been told. Let's just move on. <laughs> <laughs> so bioengineer at the University of Pennsylvania looking for a model to help researchers study dry eye disease and, and other eye diseases. I mean, it's Great to have an eye that you've maybe taken from as a, a sample from an organism or studying in vivo. But I mean, what if you can have a synthetic eye to test different treatments, test different ideas about how the disease or various eye diseases work? And they grew a ring of conjunctival cells. So those cells that get all pink and inflamed when your child sticks their finger in your eye giving you conjunctivitis, they grew a ring of those cells, this covers the white part of the eye, around a small circle of corneal cells on a contact lens-shaped platform. And then they created an eyelid, a fake eyelid that was made of a thin hydrogel film that's able to cover and uncover the eye as if in blinking to spread tear fluid over the cells. And so now the researchers can manipulate and modulate this synthetic eye to be able to figure out, you know, the best application of eye drops or other treatments to be able to actually treat 
people with dry eye disease and actually help the chemical composition to hydrate the eye more readily. Here's my theory on that. That's one of those. I don't want dry eye disease is a big deal, I know. But I feel like that was one of those where it's like, let's make an eye that blinks. And then they made the eye that blinks and they were like, oh man, now what do we, we got to <laughs> do, do something? Now what do we do with it? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but I'll tell you, we got to keep an eye on that one. Hey, I got that. I got that one in. <laughs> I mean, at some point they're going to market this. It's going to be a Halloween <laughs> scare. You know, you're going to go into a haunted house. There's going to be eyes blinking at you. Yeah. They're going to make money on it. Thanks a lot, Dr. Dan Huh from University. Dan Huh from the University of Pennsylvania. That's right. Yeah, well. That's great. It's cool. It's cool. And I'm sure it's even cooler than we know, Keeks. It's definitely cooler than I thought it was before you started telling me about it. (laughs) But that's the end of my stories. So, Dalen, tell me some cool stem cell news, please. All right, let's start at the beginning. You know, human pluripotent stem cells, right? That's what we all care about in this game because they can infinitely self-renew and develop into all the major cell types of the body, blah, 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 great for regenerative medicine, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the thing, you know, in theory, that all makes sense, but there's a lot of practical obstacles we all know, bottlenecks that are technical, theoretical even. But one of the major ones that people don't talk about often because we're all so rich is the cost, you know, of all the things in the cocktail of media that allows you to keep the stem cell self-renewing. The most expensive are these genetically engineered growth factors that are produced by bacterial or animal cells. They're particularly expensive, these recombinant proteins, as they're so-called. And, you know, when you get into clinical application, this becomes even more complicated. you got to have these xeno-free conditions, no animal derivatives, and et cetera, so that they're in line with application in human patients in clinical trials. So this is a major challenge. It's expensive. And, of course, you got to do this. And now the new paradigm is you got to do this massive prep, a massive diff, and then you look at a portion of that and show that those cells are okay, and then you can take the rest of those cells and they can become your product, or at least that's one paradigm. Um, you know, all those ideas, though, go with the idea of tremendous expense when you're talking about scaling up these proteins. But there's this new culture method that was developed by uh, Kuichi Hasegawa of Kyoto University's Institute for Integrated Cell Material Sciences and his team. They developed this new culture recipe. It's called A-Kit, A-K-I-T culture. It uses three chemical compounds. Of course, chemical compounds makes a lot more sense. You know, then we're talking about more of the traditional pharmaceutical paradigm where you can make, you know, tons of these chemicals and they act at like nanogram scales. You know, a little bit goes a long way. It's virtually free. So these components are one is called one azakenpolone, called AK, part of the acronym. Then there's ID8, that's the I, and then there's tecrolimus, that's the T, so AKIT. And the AK, part of that, that supported the self-renewal. And also, though, and this is where it became interesting, and this is where I think it's been so challenging to find a kind of silver bullet for maintaining HESC or HPSC self-renewal in chemicals, cocktails, is that you kind of, it's a trade-off. So for instance, in this case, the one, the AK, that supported the self-renewal, but it also induced differentiation as you know, hard as it may be to reconcile those two things. Um, so in order to further inhibit the differentiation byproduct there, they added the I, the it ate. But this compound also led to partial growth arrest. The cells stopped growing. So they added a third compound, tacrolimus, which was added to counter this growth arrest effect. So you know, all in, when these three compounds combine, they act in aggregate to, you know, self-renew, also maintain growth. And the survival and growth rates of these lines may be a little bit lower in the A-kit medium, we should say, but the key advantage cannot be overstated. It's so simple. It's so cheap that you can scale up, you know, we're talking about two orders of magnitude in the cost when you talk about scaling this up. Yeah, something that might have cost 10000 maybe gets down to around $500 to complete the experiment, you know? So according to the researchers, uh, this improved method of culturing may thus facilitate the large-scale, quality-controlled, and cost-effective translation of HPSC culture practices 
to clinical and drug screening applications. This is a study that was published in the journal Nature Biomedical Engineering. And I think this is really portends the, not really even the future, it's kind of the present. Of we're, we're talking now, Kiki, about how we're going to get this stuff in play. I think it's a good discussion to have. We're moving beyond the kind of theory and talking about practice and scaling up to clinical trial type um, volumes of cells. So maybe a harbinger of some clinical trials really coming into play and seeing some real life results. Kiki, I know we talk about this so much. We can't wait to see what these cells are going to do in people. I think we're getting close. Yeah. I mean, it's steps like this, being able to take it away from just being a, a thing that happens in the lab at the bench at very small scale to large scale to be able to do it over and over and over again with lots and lots and lots of cells that all turn out the same. I mean, that's great. Yep. That's what we need. We're close. We're close, Keeks. We're close. Not that close, let's be honest. But <laughs> it's going to be a while, but we're getting there. <laughs> we're a tiny, tiny bit closer. All right. Well, we're closer to also understanding what it is about age and our rotten brains. You know, brain deterioration, it's just like a fact of the matter as you get older. Speak for um, yourself. I mean, <laughs> my brain is young. Yeah, well, no, it's, no, it's, it is, it's no, pretty it's young. I'm not going to lie. You got your brain, no wrinkles on your brain, which is probably not normal, if we're honest. <laughs> but hey, listen, there's a, there's a group of genes and genetic switches involved in age-related brain deterioration, all right? Now, we all knew they were there, right? There had to be some kind of switch. Now, a part of that switch has been identified by scientists at Bob Braham Institute in Cambridge and Sapienza University in Rome, all right? This was published uh, a little bit ago in Aging Cell. It found that changes to one of these genes, so it was a whole group of genes, but they really zeroed in on this one as kind of an example of proof of principle. This one called DBX2, if they made a change that one gene, they could prematurely age uh, brain stem cells, making them act more old, essentially to grow more slowly. And this is important, you know, cells in the brain I know people think of it as this static organ, but there is a lot of turnover in the brain. We need the new brain stem cells, especially for forming memory and blah, blah, blah. And as we age, as you might imagine, it becomes harder. These stem cells, it's harder for them to self-renew and they, they slow down. And so we slow down. Our memories slow down. Everyone except for Kiki, of course. <laughs> but by comparing the activity of brain cells from old and young mice... These scientists they identified a large cohort, over 250 genes that were differentially expressed with age. And it was really about older cells turning a bunch of genes on, one of them being this DBX2, and also turning a lot of genes off. And focusing on the DBX2, they could turn this one on in the young brain cells, and they behave more like older cells. So just this one gene, change activity, this one gene, also, it identified some like epigenetic marks. We all know about epigenetics. These are kind of the switches that affect expression of genome. There are some epigenetic marks in older stem cells that might be present and contribute to this reduced activity and deterioration. And, you know, what they showed is that with the young versus the old, the placement of these epigenetic marks change. We get additional ones added to the old cells, and that could alter how the cells behave. And you know, the big idea here is that we're going to find genes that are on and turn them off, or we're going to find genes that are off and restore them. But, I mean, if I'm honest, while this is a major step forward, I think that the brain is much more complicated, and there's a question of cause and effect here with this DBX2. There was over 250 genes. So I'm going to be very cautious in my interpretation of this one and say that this group, while they've found a major difference between old and young brains. I could tell you a few differences between old and young brains just looking at the difference between my kid and me. And they are profound, although probably not going to stop my brain from deteriorating if I were to address them. Kiki, what do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, first, this is a study on mice, so we don't even know if this is the same gene that's going to be active in humans. And there was a study that just came out from UCSF this last week that showed that the stem cells stop dividing in childhood. So this idea that we have dividing stem cells in the adult human brain, the way that they found in mice and rats. I mean, they found these dividing stem cells in other mammals, but new evidence says this is not happening in humans. So Absolutely. let's look at Absolutely. this gene. Let's look at these epigenetic markers in humans. Let's see if human tissue is turning this stuff off at earlier stages 
on or off? And there's some really big questions still to be answered here. Big questions. I wish we'd had that in the roundup. That was a big set. I guess it just came through, so we didn't have time. But I saw that, too. Yeah. It was really notable, not just in young, but in neonates. In neonates, These cells, yeah. it's like you have one year, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. You have, no, the, in the front to temporal <laughs> zone where you're making memories, you have one year. But, you know, so there's a lot of open questions. I think the major point there, yes, mice, please. You got to show me some human. But still, a, a good story. I love the name Sapienza as a university. If I went there, I would feel very smart. Yes, I would too. Oh, yes. I wish I were there. I wish I were in Italy. Sapienza. It's for the sapiens. That's right. <laughs> All of us sapiens out there. So now we're on to another ES story. Some researchers over at National Center for Cell Science, NCCS, they found a dual mechanism to keep specific genes off that maintain pluripotency in embryonic stem cells. We're back to pluripotency. And this is interesting. It's a dual mechanism. There's these two separate mechanisms probably compensating for one another if one of them goes wrong, but they both converge on endocytosis. And I think this is a major point. No one talks about endocytosis a lot in terms of like lineage specification or maintenance of identity in cells or even signaling that much, as much as they should, considering that endocytosis is the way that you get these vesicles carrying in information from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. And interestingly enough, there's a lot of endocytosis-associated genes that are suppressed in embryonic stem cells relative to their expression in specialized differentiated cells. And this might make sense intuitively. Think of embryonic stem cells as like quiet, whereas the differentiated cells have to have much more engagement with the outside. Who the heck knows why they do it? But it's a fact. You see more endocytosis expressing genes. And if you undermine this and overexpress them, you can cause differentiation. But the precise mechanism by which these endocytosis associated genes are suppressed, turned off in embryonic stem cells is not really known. But this is, was until a team led by Dr. Deepa Subramayanam of uh, NCS, they decipher this. They identified two pathways. One is polycomb repressive complex. We'll call that PRC2. And the other was this embryonic stem cell-specific cell cycle. We'll call that the ESCC, which is a microRNA, class of microRNA. So first, let's just talk about the PRC2. The PRC2 complex, it has four subunits. The particular one is this subunit EZH2, which is implicated in a lot of epigenetic modifications. So we've talked about that a few times in the show. And what's interesting here is when you knocked down EZH2, it led to a significant increase in the expression of endocytosis-associated genes. So this PRC2 complex in ES cells is normally suppressing endocytosis, and when you knock it down, these endocytosis genes come up, and then you lose self-renewal. On the other hand, you have microRNAs, this ESCC family, and they all converge on a lot of genes that are involved in endocytosis. So both of these genes, when they were sabotaged or undermined in these ES cells, they cause a loss of self-renewal. And to confirm that the genes were necessary, they had an inducible system where they could turn them on and off, and they introduced each gene one at a time, and in both cases, they show that they lost their pluripotency. So, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, the theme of the day is we're, we're figuring out what are the fundamental mechanisms by which we can control the behavior of these cells. And we're trying to figure out recipes for getting them into the clinic. And this is, I think, a more basic, fundamental idea of how these cells do what they do, uh, following from stories about, you know, how we can apply these cells in a practical, large-scale way. So basic science, Kiki, you know, no one's going to throw a party for this story, but I think it's an important one. And Kiki does, too. Science <laughs> party. Science party. Science party. Is that fun <laughs> when you go to a science party? Yes. Yes, it is. All right, I'm going to get right to it. This one bugged me out a little bit, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek on this, but you'll, you'll hear it. So the stem cell treatment to reverse early menopause. Eesh. It's kind of, I think, a little bit too aggressive to call it a positive result, but it's raised a lot of hopes that women who are affected by early menopause can go on to have children naturally. I think false hope a little bit. But the, what the approach was, they took bone marrow-derived stem cells and they injected into the ovaries of 33 women. All right, So this is kind of the mesenchymal stem cell slurry from bone marrow aspirate that's not well-defined. 
has previously been injected into a lot of places, not to great effect, typically. And these are 33 women suffering from premature ovarian failure, okay? This is women who stop having periods. It's kind of a prelude to menopause in women of an appropriate age, but it can happen to many women at a premature age. And the idea here is that in addition to treating the kind of menopausal associated symptoms, you know, vis-a-vis hot flashes, etc., which can plague women and precede their full infertility menopause, the idea here is that it can also maybe even restore fertility and act really practically as an alternative to classic HRT, the hormone replacement therapy that has been maligned and then championed again, which is the typical approach to treating the symptoms of this premature ovarian failure. But, you know, I think the big idea here, which is very aggressive and premature, is to state that these women can maybe have the chance to have a baby. All right, so let's quote the authors here. When POF patients desire pregnancy, the only current option is to receive donor eggs. Many women, due to various religious, cultural, ethical considerations, would like to use your own eggs. So that's the rationale for this story. And that's what really bothered me. Also, the data is not really there. This is a paper to be presented at the Society for Reproductive Investigation in San Diego next week, probably this week when you guys are hearing it. And in this kind of the run-up to this, the researchers were quoted saying, the patients demonstrated diminished postmenopausal symptoms from episodes of hot flushes to vaginal dryness and insomnia. In addition, no complications or safety issues have been reported so far. And then they're going to give an update with additional patient data in this meeting, which is in mid-March. And then they add as a postscript there, quote, longer follow-up in a larger cohort will be needed to validate the utility of this novel approach. And this is where it bothers me. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps there may be some mysterious mechanism by which injecting mesenchymal stem cells can invigorate the ovary or something and cause a restoration of some hormonal function to maybe mitigate or put off menopausal symptoms. But this is a story where they're pretty much selling it as women, you're going to have a baby. And this is where I think it becomes a bit manipulative. Yeah. They don't know that at all. And they have no indication. I guess we'll see in this meeting. But this is all the press surrounding this is concerning to me. Quote, Dr. Adam Balin of the British Fertility Society said, when a woman goes through an early menopause, there are no eggs remaining in the ovaries that are able to be ovulated. However, there's some evidence that a few eggs may remain that don't have the mechanism to be released and fertilized. This interesting research suggests it may be possible to resurrect activity within a dormant ovary for how long and with what degree of fertility potential is still very uncertain. And there is no doubt that much more research is required before this can be seen as a solution for women who experience POI. Now, this is a really, I think, strong statement of caution from Dr. Adam Balin. But working in a fertility clinic, I can tell you, Kiki, that women are going to read this story and say, I want stem cells. Put them in there. Exactly. Inject. I know you said it probably won't work (sighs) and we need to see, but let's just see with my ovary. Let's just see. And that's that's what I'm afraid is going to happen. I have to throw it out there that, I mean, you're just putting random, I mean, it's not random, but just mesenchymal stem cells in there. And what are they going to do? I mean, lots of women have issues with fibroids or endometriosis, and that's an overgrowth of the uterine tissue. So Mm -hmm. what are these new cells going to do after a year? Two years, you know, maybe you ha- your periods come back because you've got cell activity and the, the uterus is producing more hormones itself, but there's still a lot really not known. Best case scenario, they're gone. What about a I uterine know. tumor? I mean, yeah, come no, on. I think it's, it's, very, it's very premature, if not reckless, but yeah, it's mean, not the worst thing. It's not the worst thing we've seen, Kiki. It just, it's, it's pretty much par for the course these days. In the United States, I'll say. In the United States. I'm still a big fan of the FDA getting in on the regulation of the stem cell clinics and these kinds of treatments. So, you know, a clinical trial, that's one thing. And if it's an actual clinical trial and not one of these fuddy-duddy ones where, you know, they're asking the patients to pay for the whole thing and where it's questionable methods. If it's an actual clinical trial, fair game. People can do it. But, uh, yeah. Ugh. Uh, I don't I don't want people to get hurt and I want I don't want stem cells that this kind of stem cell stuff to lead to giving stem cell treatments and therapies a bad name prematurely. Yes. That's what we're afraid of also. Yeah. And by the way, last time I checked, infertility was not like a terminal condition. I don't want to yeah. understate it as a disease, but if you're like 
at end stage heart failure, that's one thing. But yeah, come on, leave your ovaries alone, ladies. <laughs> yeah, well, fingers are crossed, and you know, I hope if women do are able to get pregnant, I mean, that's showing that something's going on. I mean, I'll yeah. eat something, Kiki. You let the listeners decide if one of those 33 women gets pregnant. And it's shown to somehow involve MSCs. I'm going to eat something that you tell me to eat. <laughs> eat a carrot. No, <laughs> I'm not good at coming up with like dares. It's not, it's not in my, it's you not, know, it's not time, in me. I'll tell you one time I ate a banana with the skin on it. Can you believe it? Ew. Yeah, that's, it was pretty bad. That's no good. <laughs> that's good. I'm just, just imagining. It wasn't. Yuck. Well, anyway, as we move out of the roundup and our wonderful conversation here, we're going to get into our interview. But before we do, it's important to note that science is definitely worth celebrating. Like, we're coming, you know, the science party, let's have it, right? Breakthroughs and discoveries can change the world. And it's scientists like you who make this happen. To celebrate science, Stem Cell Technologies is featuring some of the scientists who have inspired and motivated them. If you're curious about who they are and what is so inspirational about their research, visit stemcell.com slash scientists helping scientists. I like in getting inspired. I'm going to go visit. I've been there. It's really cool. They have a lot of cool and inspiring scientists. I would love to be inspired. So I'm going to go visit it. I hope everyone out there does as well. Inspiration. It's what keeps us going. Okay. So our interview guest today is Dr. William Dunworth. After following the traditional academic route, PhD and postdoc, Will transitioned over to private industry, where he now serves as an account manager for stem cell technologies. Here to talk about his current career and the transition he made from bench to business is Dr. Dunworth. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Dalen. It's a pleasure to meet you guys. Pleasure to meet you, too. So just to get started, what is it that you do in your current role at Stem Cell Technologies? My official title is account manager or sales. From a distance, people may think that may be something like, you know, going to labs and talking about pipette tips or test tubes or something like that. But it's much more involved. I'd say it's more of like a scientific consultant role. I meet with researchers, discuss their experiments. You know, I'm well aware of their projects. I read into their publications. So we have really productive conversations. And you know, my ultimate goal at the very end of the day is to make sure that you know, scientists are successful. So everything kind of points to that. You know, I think it's a bit of an oversimplification. Everyone loves, because of the B alliteration, I guess, the bench to something, the bench to the bedside, the bench to whatever. It's all a transition. I think it's oversimplifying. Every story is different. We're here to listen to your story, but maybe we could develop a little bit more about the bench first. What was your bench experience? Where are your scientific roots? I got into science you know, back as an undergrad. I was pre-med, and I started doing some bench work as a pre-med in a lab that was studying platelet aggregation in blood vessels. And I really, really enjoyed that work, you know, studying the molecular biology, understanding pathways, and it really kind of fixed something in my brain that I was like, this is, you know, the direction I want to go. At the same time, this was the year 2000, and funding rate was awesome. You know, everybody was coming off the Clinton stimulus into the NIH. Funding rates for the NHLBI was around 35%, if you guys can't believe that. Yikes. <laughs> My eyebrows just lifted. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I thought to myself, this is you know, a great career. That I love science. I could definitely pursue this. I jumped onto that train. I went to grad school at University of North Carolina. And at that point, I really started to focus on vascular biology. I guess specifically developmental vascular biology, looking at the development of blood vessels. And at the time, what was really novel was lymphatic vessels. I used a bunch of mouse models, you know, tissue culture models as well, including you know, primary cells and mouse ESLs. I really got into it, again, really focusing on the molecular biology. My degree was in genetics and molecular biology, which I still use to this day. I feel it's like pretty much the universal language between, between all the different disciplines in biomedical sciences. I published pretty well, and I wanted to really leverage that to you know, give, like many other people, get a good postdoc. And uh, I was able to, to get into a postdoc position at the vascular biology and therapeutics program at Yale. That point was, this is 2009. And obviously, we had the Great Recession. That's when the train was really starting to fall off the tracks. 
funding across the board was getting cut. People that had obtained grants and then people that are looking for grants, they're finding you know, it very difficult to win them. You know, it was, I guess, not to magnify too much, it was bloodbath. A lot of good people were lost at that time. You could see it you know, within my role, researchers and scientists, down to the postdocs were all being affected by this. And with that, I am um, still focused on vascular biology, you know, hoping that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I was characterizing a, a novel pathway involved in vascular identity between a vein and a lymphatic vessel using zebrafish, mouse models, and uh, some uh, iPS cells. Those are my basic roots I still think about quite often today, you know, even within the role I have. And uh, I still check in to see where things are going in that field. And so the transition that ended up occurring, when did that happen at the, you're doing your postdoc, you're working on this vascular characterization, you're doing your work, and you're also looking at the landscape of funding and jobs that are out there. What happened? How did you end up in this role? It was quite remarkable. I guess the situation I was in, I, I was working at the Cardiovascular Research Center at Yale, surrounded by some really amazing scientists, some you know, world-renowned PIs, you know, some really amazing postdocs. Everybody is really coming against this funding cliff, and it's affecting the PIs. And then postdocs are having you know, difficulty finding positions you know, within the traditional academic route. And I just remember there's a lot of camaraderie you know, within you know, postdocs and grad students. We like to complain to each other <laughs> a lot and as well as, you know, at the same time, you know, try to benefit each other through, you know, giving suggestions and ideas, not only for experiments, but for careers. I just remember sitting around the coffee room late one night with a handful of postdocs and we're all like with our hands up, like, what are we going to do? People at that point had started to put out their applications for faculty positions and, you know, they were going nowhere. These are people that are publishing in really high tier journals at the time. It was tough. And, you know, at least for me personally, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. I mean, these people that I was working with that were getting rejected within academic routes were definitely better scientists than me, no doubt about it. At the same time, you know, I wanted to make sure that I could plan a, a new career path that was not just secure for me professionally and career-wise, but for my family as well. Um, at that time, I had two boys, two young boys during my postdoc. So that was a big pressure. Being a professional postdoc is not something that <laughs> was on the table for you. You're like, hey, I could get another postdoc and then another postdoc. No. Yeah, that was not in the cards for me. I needed to move. I needed to, to figure out something to do. You know, the, the way you're describing the postdoc experience, it reminds me about a friend I had in New York. We were talking after she had moved to California and she said something that really crystallized my whole life and she said you know there's this like kind of badge of honor everyone has in New York who's scrambling the most who's the most stressed who's you know in the biggest rush who's everyone else in their life is the biggest pain in the ass to them and if you're not that then you're like a loser and she moved <laughs> to OI California and she was like, everybody's just so happy. No one's in anybody's way. Nobody's in a rush. Nobody has this like ambition. It's not a badge of honor to be suffering. And it reminds me kind of what you're talking about a postdoc. It's like, yeah, everyone's looking around like you're not a real postdoc unless you're really suffering. You can't get a job and you're facing this doom and this dismal future. Like if you're not miserable as a postdoc, you're not trying hard enough. You know what I mean? And so I, I wonder, like, this is the interesting corollary is like when you get to the other side of that, you know, you look back, are you kind of like, what was I doing? Is it like, well, this was clearly, I mean, I feel like you would say so this is the right decision for you for sure. But could you maybe influence some postdocs out there or maybe wondering, like, or come to the point where they're like, what is this that I'm fighting for? Could you maybe reflect on that, how you feel personally and what you might give some advice to someone who might be in a similar position of crisis, because we're all in crisis. I'll tell you, it doesn't stop. You get your you get your faculty position, you need your grant, you can't, you get your promotion, and then you got to keep publishing or else you're, you know, redundant. It's like they never get off the treadmill. So, you know, give us an insight into the other path. Tell us, how can we be like you, well, Dr. Denver? Well, I think kind of what happens is, like you're saying, like this badge of honor, I guess not very fondly remember, you know, coming out of the conference room, you know, two o'clock in the morning and not only being the person, only person on the floor, you know, several other researchers out there trying to push through, get experiments done. And what kind of happens is like the goalposts continually move and you kind of end up getting your, your head stuck in the sand. 
And I think my advice would be you got to stand up and see that, especially nowadays, there are so many more options for postdocs who don't want to pursue a traditional academic route. For myself, it was, you know, getting into you know, biotech and industry. Some of my former colleagues, they've been able to establish teaching roles at liberal arts universities. Other people have gone to pharmaceuticals. Um, more people I know have actually gone to law. And there's many more resources that I think are be- being provided by the postdoc offices as you know, people have recognized, obviously, that there are only so many seats at the table for postdocs to get you know, a tenure track position. So you said that there's a, a lot of what you do that, you know, like the genetics and molecular biology that is like the common language and it allows you to really communicate across the board with the scientists that you're working with now. But what other things in your current career kind of helped you make the transition? What kind of skills did you learn as a grad student and a postdoc that are applicable to the business world and these relationships that you're building? Yeah, especially with building relationships, you know, as a grad student, as a postdoc, having students work under me and mentoring them, people that you know had no science background before, I'd say that has been quite viable. Just the teaching of science to researchers, you know, explaining things in a clear way so that they can get the point and be able to move on with their you know, experimental progress and their scientific progress. At the same time, while I was in, especially during my postdoc, this sense of community, while it was not all doom and gloom. We definitely had a lot of discussions just about science. I mean, that's what you're there, you know, 12 hours a day. And of course, you can talk about the the local sports team or the weather. But for the most part, you're going to be talking about the most recent publications or, you know, the new assay that you're developing or the new technique that served me very well and be able to communicate with researchers out in the field. Another thing, too, is what I kind of found towards the end of my postdoc as I was trying to figure out, all right, what am I going to do outside of academics? I kind of leaned on the fact that I really like to be at the bench and do a whole wide variety of different techniques from different microscopy to different model systems. One of the papers that I published, I had a, generated a, you know, a new zebrafish model, generated a new mouse model, did some interesting uh, cultures with uh, ES cells, and then you know, layered on some microRNAs and all this fun stuff. That served me well, especially as the field has changed with the advent of organoid technology. You know, unfortunately, that was not there when I was at the bench. I wish it was. But just being able to have more technical discussions with researchers out there. So I think you kind of alluded to how stem cell tech is really kind of, they're providing reagents to the research, but they're moving it forward in a bit too. I feel like there's a lot of original research that goes on there. And probably what makes it so valuable to scientists and the valuation, by the way, of stem cell tech. I know it's a private company, but I talked to some <laughs> consultants who said that it's being aggressively pursued for a buyout, but Dr. Eves is not willing to sell. And I think that says a lot. Maybe you could give us a little bit of insight, because I'm sure you're psyched about your job. You like what you do, and you like the company you do it for. Like, Tell us, why is stem cell tech such a juggernaut why are they so good at what they do and like what's the end game do you think for the company for you within the company maybe that's a very good question i think the secret in the sauce so you say would be you know our simple motto we are scientists helping scientists about 50 percent of the people that work at stem cell company or stem cell technologies have their phd or master's we have been in the researchers shoes we can relate with the issues and the challenges that they've had at the bench at the same time, we strive to be the most innovative biotechnology company out there. We've been able to foster really strong relationships with lots of key opinion leaders out in the field that have been fortunate enough to work with us to develop some of our new products. At the same time, by having this pulse for the field and relationships that's going between researchers and our R&D, we've been able to really predict the next step for products that could serve researchers well to, to, you know, as they advance their research. Do you find anything extremely enjoyable about your job? Like, what's your favorite thing that you love to do? I thought I was probably annoying back in, like, grad school and as a postdoc. I do love talking science and speaking with researchers. So it's been quite fortuitous that, I mean, that's my job. You know, I get to go out and set up meetings with researchers, dive into their research before I meet with them, and get to know them on a personal level, as well as, you know, not just their project goals, but, you know, some of their professional goals. 
I probably has been really rewarding is in cases that I've been able to, I'm probably giving myself too much credit here, but you know, play you know, a small piece in their success professionally or with some of their publications. Obviously, I can't publish anymore. At least I can <laughs> look back and see that I kind of saw that whole thing coming together and you know, stem cell technologies you know, help push it along. You kind of described yourself as a scientific consultant there, and I'm picturing you day to day. It's you must be ramming around the whole Eastern Seaboard. Is that like what's your range? If someone wanted to like have an idea of what your job was like on a day to day basis, it's a lot of flying, a lot. It's like the consultant type cliche where you're traveling four days out of the week, or not that extreme. It's definitely not that extreme. I cover the Southeast of the United States, specifically for cell culture media products, which obviously covers our stem cell media products. That includes Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. And I travel two trips a month at most. For the most part, I spend most of my time reading, either reading publications, looking at grants, trying to see where people are going with their research, and obviously you know, working with customers who maybe have technical issues. So it's like, I'm going to look at your science and we're like, look, here's how we can make this organoid thing work for you with our media. Is it like you look in your catalog and suit your reagent to them? Or do you ever like customize stuff for the client? At the end of that, it ends up being somewhat customized solutions. I can give you one example would be, and I'm not going to say the lab that I'm working with, but I've been trying pinging them. You know, they're actually a glioblastoma cancer lab. And you know, traditionally, they've been using mouse models to you know, test some of the vaccines that they're developing. And I kind of saw, thought for a little bit. And I know that this has actually been discussed somewhat with by Howard Fine at Cornell and utilizing brain organoids as a template in which you could you know, add exogenous glioma cells and you know, add whichever drug or this or that to see whether it's going to affect the uh, invasion of the tumor. So you could actually, I saw that and I thought, okay, well, maybe you could add some other layers to that as well. If there's some sort of immune role within that, the, the pathogenesis of that tumor, you could derive it by IPS. In fact, now you could actually derive all of the cells from the same, obviously from the same IPS cell line. So everything's syngeneic. So you could really accurately model completely what's going on within a patient as opposed to the traditional you know, humanized mouse model. That's an example, but like trying to connect the dots and you know, demonstrate the people that maybe don't have a background and haven't been using stem cells, just you know, revealing them to them, you know, the, the possibilities of a different kind of questions that they can answer utilizing them. That sounds fascinating. I mean, that was one of my favorite parts of being a grad student, of being a scientist also, was that the investigation process of putting ideas together and being able to, like you said, kind of see a path and see where the research might lead and, you know, that you can still have a, a role in this job is, I mean, that's exciting. It's pretty exciting. At the end of the day, I actually am not going to be doing any of the work. Right. No, it's great. You're the idea man. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I guess it kind of harkens back to, you know, just the scientific training that all of us have, have obtained. When you're sitting down there and you're, you're putting together a grant or a paper, you got to look five to 10 steps ahead. There's probably hundreds of ideas that each of us and you know, probably every scientist have, have had. And, you know, some of them will work, some of them won't. But just going through that thought process is something that I just can't turn off, obviously, after so many years at the bench. Bro, I got to tell you, you've got the better end of that. You get to be like, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And you don't have to deal with all the agony of getting the negative results. And I'm sure they only tell you about the positive, And that's what you follow up on. That's a win. You're the idea guy, like Kiki said. I love it. I wish I could be the idea guy. I'm just the guy that implements failed experiments. Oh my. <laughs> not always, not always. I get my, I got about a 25% positive rate on ideas that pan out just how I like, which is good in science. I'll take that. That's great. That's great. So final question here for people who might be interested in looking into a job as an accounts manager. Where should they look? How should they prepare themselves? Like, is there something they specifically should put on their CV, on their resume? How do you sell yourself? What's that step? If you, I want to get this job. I'm going to leave postdoc. I want to be the idea guy or lady. I guess for a role like mine, you definitely have to demonstrate that you have the technical acumen. While we have discussed science quite a bit, at the end of the day, a sales role is revenue-based. 
So you need to be driven, you need to be a self-starter, and you really need to demonstrate that in your cover letter and your resume that you have those abilities. A good place to start is for anybody who's very interested out there. You can always look at you know, current job postings from a wide variety of different biotechnology companies, including stem cell, and just see specifically what they are looking for and try to uh, obviously attune your, your resume and your cover letter to fit that. At the same time, you know, what I've realized as well in my past experience when I was jumping out from, from academia to industry is that there's a glut of people out there. There are a lot of people out there looking for positions and to get past HR and everything like that, it, you really need to build a really strong network. If you haven't done it yet, get to work on that. They could begin with you know, informational interviews with people that currently have that role, leveraging some of your previous colleagues that you've worked with to the maximum. And maybe it's not them that's in a, in a given uh, industry role or, or sales role, but maybe it's one of their friends or something like that and you know, get an informational interview with them. That's something that's quite large in this. You know, if you want to go to the traditional job search engine sites, your success rate is going to be quite low compared to if you were to do something more you know, face-to-face and, and getting past some of the, the barriers that are out there. I think that's great advice. And it comes down to people and who you know, what kind of relationships you have. and What are we talking about there? LinkedIn? I've never been very good at the network thing. LinkedIn, Facebook. Is that where you start or you mean like actual <laughs> organic networks like like people you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think man. you know LinkedIn is a great place to start. I have th- seen on my side of things a lot of people who are in industry, you know, have accounts on LinkedIn and it's definitely a great place to you know display your resume out there. You will get recruiters coming after you probably, which is a great place, a great great thing to happen. But at the same time, I think some of this organic relationship building is important as well. You know, if you're still in science and you're still a postdoc, you know, going to conferences and you know, getting people's business cards, making sure that you're following up with them. Who knows? They might be a scientist now, but you know, the next day they might be in a cool position at a, a company that you want to work at. So you know, keeping a Rolodex, you know, it's it's maybe 1950s sort of a uh, strategy is important. But you can also use the innovative, more social media, LinkedIn sort of resources as well. Anything else you want to add that we haven't covered? No, actually, I think the last thing I'd like to add is just that, uh, you know, you guys are doing a fantastic job at the Stem Cell Podcast. You know, going out, you know, with these discussions I have with customers and researchers, everybody's listening to you guys, you know, at the bench, on the bus, on the bike. And you know, it's very it's- generous. You're a scientist helping scientists. We're just scientists talking, I guess. But I guess we're talking to other scientists. But no, it, it, no, especially, you know, when you guys are discussing, you know, the, the most recent publications and everything like that, that's a fantastic resource for researchers. It's really, really, really great. And uh, at least for me, and I think for everybody out there, thank you for everything you guys do. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was wonderful having you on the show today. Thanks for your insight and uh, for hopefully helping other trainees, grad students, postdocs, or even, you know, young professors consider transitions and different options. So thank you so much. And thank you guys. So Dr. Dunworth, that was my man, the idea guy. We got him from him. He's got plenty of ideas about how you, if you wanted to make the transition, could. But I mean, I think a bigger picture gives a nice insight. I felt that exact experience that he was in and I think a lot of people have felt that, continue to feel it. And to be honest, I envy his position in a company where it's very clear. Maybe I, I don't understand what he's doing that well, but it seems like they're a part of a good team, you know? It's nice to know you're part of something where the goals are very clear and uh, you know that you, you're working towards them. So, Dr. Dunworth, thanks for sharing. Yeah, I love getting a chance to talk with him about what he's doing and the fact, I mean, the fact that he's still able to have an influence in scientific research through his work, you know, and maybe not necessarily have to deal with, like you said, the failures. Oh, <laughs> Just so help, crushing. Help move things forward. Yeah. No, that, yeah it's tough. It's tough. It's but, tough. you know, he's found us away. Yeah. And it's good to know for all of the scientists out there, whether trainee or already professional, that your skills are applicable in other areas and there are other options. You're valued. You know what the worst thing about rejection is, Kiki? I mean, you must know you've had enough in your scientific career, I'm sure, too. But the rejection, after a few rejections, you start to think, 
that you lose value, you know? And I think uh, you got to be reminded, the young people out there have to remind you, you have value. You know, that PhD is not easy to get, and your skill set has value. Maybe not in what you're doing right now. <laughs> if you feel worthless right now, that doesn't mean you don't have worth. Get out there. Do something. Do something else. Do something just like you're doing. Keep going. That's right. Be inspired and keep going because there is more to do. But that's enough uh, inspiring words. I don't think either of us are qualified to give any inspirational words. I, I, maybe I can only Talk, speak for Yeah, myself. speak for yourself. Come on. <laughs> I tell you what I am qualified to do, though. I'm qualified for something. You're qualified to rant. And right now is the time for our Stem Cell Podcast rant. It's our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I have a very simple rant. It stems not from anger, but from hurt feelings. I don't know if it's like this everywhere, but in New York, you know, there's a lot of pizza places where famous, you get your pizza and then you don't, you get it to, you know, to stay because you're going to eat it in out of your hand on the walk home, but you got to dress it. You got to put the, the oregano or the little, little pepper flakes. So there's the counter for the pepper flakes and all this stuff. And you go there and there's no pepper flakes and there's no oregano. And you're like, well, I know they didn't just forget about the oregano, you look around, and of course, there's some a-holes over there sitting there with their own private little oregano. They're taking all the oregano for their table. That's not cool. Yeah, everybody knows that that's the common oregano. Uh, it's not your own private oregano. No, no, you don't get that. No. I mean, and who needs a whole serving container of oregano? You're not going to dump the whole thing on your pizza. Why can't you just... Take no, it, and you're, listen, put a little bit on your like, pizza and leave exactly, it there for everyone else. Exactly. Right? I mean, I'll tell you what else. You're not going to put it on and then get to your table and be like, oh, man, I wanted more oregano. And then you're going to have to add more. You don't do double applications of oregano. So I'm telling you, I'm warning you guys. I said it was hurt feelings, but there's a reprisal. This is what I'm doing for now. I just did it the other day. The pepper flakes weren't there. I found who had the pepper flakes. I went over to get the pepper flakes. I, you didn't have to make me go over there and ask you for the pepper flakes, did you? But I did. And so what I did, I put all my hot breath. I said, can I have those? I, I was breathing all over your food. And just all my breath was on you, you who took the pepper flakes. So know this, people. If you're going to take the pepper flakes, you better be ready to take some hot breath, too. Because I'm coming you're, for you. You're going to have Dalen breathing down your neck. <laughs> and it's going to be hot. Oh and no guarantees. People, people are going to look up at you and just be like, who is this weirdo? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you what. It's the pepper flake police. And my, I don't carry a gun, but I got some hot, hot breath. Hot, hot breath. Fiery. You want to make it hotter with the pepper flakes? Yeah, everyone out there, just, you know, even if you have to take this, you're grabbing a bunch of things, you have a bunch of slices that you need to, and you're just grabbing everything, take it to your table, at least... Shake, shake, shake. Go put it back. This, these are condiments for everyone. Condiments for all, not just all condiments like for you. We love con Everybody loves it. Share and share alike. It's condiments. It's the reason for Obvious. eating. It's okay. like preschool. <laughs> I mean, I learned that in maybe in like first grade, if I'm honest. Yeah, you're like, who took the glue? I mean, <laughs> exactly. I was eating that glue. <laughs> I was eating <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Be considerate, people. Consider it with condiments. Please. Yeah. Well, that does it for this week. Everyone, be sure to send us your rant ideas if you have them on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email us info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com. And Dalen, this does it. It concludes episode 112 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Everyone out there, be sure to tune in for our next episode. Dalen, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kiki.